Um, sometimes uh, we preachers get in a bit of a quandary because we feel like we should only preach things that we're awesome at or at least, you know, you know, just at least you could pass um, at. But if, we, if we're only preaching at things that we have a really good handle on, then we become the benchmark of the instruction rather than the scriptures. So today, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to preach on something that I, have str- I, I really struggle to do, and I hope that's okay. Um, but as I was studying this, I really felt the conviction of the Lord on me that, that I needed to step this up in my own life. Uh, and so that's just, I don't know, I just felt like I should say that. Just as Paul says in, in Philippians, not that I have already attained that's where I am this morning. But the scripture, if the scripture never ever convicts us, we have a problem, probably. You know what I'm saying? So I feel really challenged by the gospel uh, this morning, and I hope that you will as well. And if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's a, actually a wonderful and a beautiful thing. Don't, that's, our, our culture doesn't know how to distinguish that between uh, uh, distinguish shame and, and, and a healthy conviction of the Lord. But sometimes when we read about a way that we operate and then we see what, what the scripture says about the way we ought to operate and those two aren't the same, that's a wonderful time to feel and accept and embrace the conviction of the Lord. So I want to talk this morning about the Apostle Paul. Um, I want to give you a, a, a quick overview of his life up through chapter 16 of Acts and... Um, and, and then give us the, a very simple challenge of the scriptures. Simple, simple message this morning. The Apostle Paul is often pictured this way uh, he, in his study, reading, and writing. And it's for good reason, because he was an incredible scholar. Uh, early on in his life, he, uh, boy, he did a lot of studying. It's, it's almost certain that by the age of 12, he would have had the first five books of your Bible memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, like actually memorized word for word. Um, that's almost certain. He might have had massive portions even beyond that um, memorized all the way through. Uh, and even the stuff he didn't have word for word, he would have had an, a, a deep understanding of. He, um, he would have, because he was, by the time he shows up in the book of Acts, he was like the number one student of the number one scholar of the day. So this is a young man who's going places. He was very accomplished. Uh, in fact, uh, archaeologists have uncovered a place in Tarsus that they believe actually is the study, the actual study that Paul had. Here's a picture of it right here. Um, and there it is. So well, you can't zoom in real good because they weren't using a great camera, but there's <laughs> Paul's study. Um, so you know the story, I'm sure. Paul, again, once again, very accomplished. He knew so much. He was very highly regarded uh, uh, in a place where, uh, you know, academics was huge, especially uh, academics of a religious nature was, was huge. And he was the top guy. Um, so he becomes a scholar. And then when this Jesus shows up and he's killed, this is right around the time that Paul is coming into his own. And, and uh, we see him uh, at the execution of Stephen, the first martyr for Jesus. Paul is on the scene right there holding the coats of the men who stoned and killed Stephen. And after this, he becomes sort of the number one henchman for the Jewish religion. Uh, he, he is the guy, he's the, sort of the, the deputized heresy cop. 
Because Christianity at this point was considered some strange sect of Judaism. They were all Jews who were Christians. And they all believed in the Torah and all these things. But there's also this new thing with this dude, Jesus, who everybody knows the story of how he was killed. Well, some of these fruitcakes actually believe he came back to life. And now they're having these secret little prayer meetings. So Paul's job is to go into those prayer meetings, kick down the doors, and haul people off to jail. Now, he's good at this job. And there there probably were more executions beside this that we don't even know about. But one thing we know, he was good at his job, and he was zealous for the purity of his theology. So we have this man, this man who has tons of power, tons of esteem. He's at the top of his world. He's going places. People fear him, and people respect him. Now, Here's what he says about it later on. He says, If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I had far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And he really means the loss of all things because he actually did lose all of those things in the blink of an eye. All that he had accomplished, all of the hard work, all of the the all-night study sessions, all of the the debates, all of this intense scrutiny that that he worked on his entire life, Everything he had was gone. Not a single flash of light. Saul, the voice says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, as he was called by the Hebrews, says, who are you, Lord? The light's so bright, he's off his horse, he's on the ground, he tries to open his eyes, he sees nothing. He's shaking. Everyone around him is calling out, what's going on? Who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus. The one you're persecuting. Oh. Imagine. Jesus? No, no, no. Jesus. The the false Messiah, the one people tried to say died and rose again and ascended to the clouds, that that can't be true because you're supposed to be dead. That can't be true. You can't have a voice out of heaven. You can't have a spotlight that that's bright. I don't even know if that's OSHA compliant, a light that bright. That's just too, this is not, this is what is, this is, yeah, it's all gone. Everything he had. So he's struck blind. He's instructed to go into a city to meet a man of God, to be baptized, and he obeys. And when he does, the scales fall off his eyes, and he's forced then to relearn all that he had learned, to relearn the meaning of the scriptures that he thought he knew so well. They had all pointed to the Messiah, the Christ, the one he had personally opposed. So we see him now. What's Paul going to do? How is he going to respond? He just lost everything he had. So he joins the people of the way, as they call them at the time, the people of the way, these Jewish people who had become Christians, who had decided that Jesus was the Messiah. He joins them. And by doing that, he at once becomes the enemy of everyone he had grown up with. 
all these people, all of his scholarly colleagues, everyone who, who looked up to him in any way now is his enemy. They would see his conversion as an act of extreme betrayal, and he's cut off from them all now. Just look, look at this. After many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. How about that? All of his friends, now when it says the Jews, talking about the, the, uh, uh, the religious Jews who, who were pushing this agenda, tried to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Must have been a pretty big basket and a wall. That's the only way he can survive, to sneak him out into a basket. So this is what he's reduced to, from the toast of the town to a guy who needs to sneak out uh, of the city. But at least he has his new Christian crowd, right? Whew. Well, when Saul came into Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. Okay, so maybe not. Who does he have? Doesn't have the, the, the people he'd grown up with. Now he doesn't even have the people in his own community yet because they're like, dude, you killed some of our own. I don't even believe that you've met this Jesus. This is all a ploy. You're trying to trick us, aren't you? Well, I'm holding this out, buddy. I don't trust you. Well, he gets, eventually, uh, he, he gets support from, from Barnabas who convinces some of the other Christian leaders that they should Trust him at least a little bit. So he departs and he starts to preach. Now, the first people he try, decides to go to are the Hellenists, which are the Jews that, that are, are Greek-leaning. Um, uh, many of them probably were, weren't born Jews, but then had, had, uh, um, had converted. And so he goes into their synagogues and begins preaching. So he's probably thinking, well, I don't have the Jews. I don't have the regular Christians, so I'll go to these guys. And this is going to go great, Right? So he was with them in Jerusalem, coming and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Come on! Where is he going to go here? Poor guy. Anybody feeling for him a little bit? Now, he probably was thinking, okay, I, I deserve this. I deserve this. This was my history, right? So... Through all of this, somehow, he's undeterred. So he goes with Barnabas, and he begins to travel and to preach. And this is where we really get to know Paul. He decides to leave all the territory of the Jews and to go up through Asia Minor. And he begins, here's what he does. He goes into the synagogue first because he knows the Jewish religion backwards and forwards, and he knows how Christ answers those things. So he goes into the synagogue, and he begins to teach them how all of this is actually pointed to Jesus. He has success in many of those places. So many of them say, I want to turn to Jesus. But something else happens, something that was rather unexpected to many people. It's not just the Jews that are getting excited. It's the natives of these different places. Totally different culture. Not Jewish at all. Maybe, but probably worshipped all kinds of, of, of different gods. You know enough about Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and they were caught up in all of this kind of stuff. Do you imagine a worshiper of Zeus coming and he's hearing some guy talking about one god? He says, what in the world is all this about? And he finds out about Jesus. He wants to give his life to Jesus. How exciting. This is great, but it's a quandary for many people because they think, wait a minute, Judaism has always been the door towards this new faith called Christianity. And apparently that's not going to be true anymore. And Paul and Peter and the disciples get together to hash out this situation. And sure enough, people are now allowed 
Anybody is allowed to have faith in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit begins to pour out on everybody. So Paul has finally found something. He's finally found a place. Paul has finally discovered who he is and what he was meant for. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, not to the Jews, but to everybody else. And he has wonderful news for them. You can worship this Jesus. And you don't have to change your entire culture to become a different nationality. Uh, more to the point, you can become a Christian. You don't have to be circumcised. It's kind of a big deal for obvious practical reasons. And I thank God for Acts chapter, you know, it would be, imagine if that was still a thing that you had to deal with as a missionary to go in and say, and many people have made this kind of mistake before, to think you have to become Western or, or something in order to meet Jesus. Well, these kind of racial issues were precisely what they were dealing with. But Paul says, I'm a missionary to the Gentiles, and he has authority everywhere he's going. So this is where I want to pick up. He, after this is all decided, he goes on a new missionary journey. It's called the second missionary journey. And, uh, well, I'll show you a map here of where he went. He starts down uh, near Jerusalem, and they go up the coast. He goes through his hometown of Tarsus, and uh, he ends up here in, in this area. And where he wants to go, he wants to go to Asia. Nowadays, we know Asia as this massive continent with China, Mongolia, and India, and all these places. That's not what Asia was called back then. They didn't have any concept of that being the continent. Where he wanted to go was the province of Asia, probably specifically proconsul Asia, would have been these cities on the coast of what is now Turkey, specifically Ephesus. See, this is where he wants to go. These are the big places. But the Holy Spirit forbids him. We don't know why, but the Holy Spirit said, no, Paul, you can't go there. Well, that's kind of strange. So that place is out. So then he's thinking, well, maybe if I go north to uh, uh, Bithynia, and that's where Byzantine is, maybe I can go there. Well, he tries there, and the Holy Spirit forbids him to go there too. So he says, well, I don't even know what to do. I guess we'll just go to Troas then. But while he's in Troas, he has a vision. He has a vision of a man from Macedonia, a Greek man who's saying, Paul, come here. Come to Macedonia. Help us. Bring the gospel here. He wakes up. He's so excited, he tells his buddy Silas, we're going to Philippi, baby. We've got our marching orders. We know why God said no here. We're going to Philippi, and this is going to rock, Silas. You and me, baby. There you go. That's precisely what he said. It's written in there. Precisely. So they do. They jump on a boat. They don't get shipwrecked this time. Paul will experience shipwreck later on, but not this time. He crosses the sea and gets over to Philippi. So... He's excited, right? A couple of warnings, don't go here, here, but now he's got the word of the Lord, and he's excited. So he goes to this place. Philippi is a pretty major city, major cultural center. It was a, a Roman province. Everybody very proud of everything Roman there. If you're born there, you automatically became a Roman citizen, which wasn't true in any other place except for Rome, the city of Rome itself. So uh, very important cultural center. Um, and usually, again, he would go to the synagogue. The problem is, it doesn't appear there was even a synagogue in Philippi. This was a full-on Greek place. Um, and the, there was a, a tiny Jewish settlement, apparently, because he went to the next best thing to a synagogue, which would have been the place that people go to pray by the river. So on the Sabbath, the morning of the Sabbath, he goes down by the river, and he finds a handful of women there who are praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes and he says, we'll start right here. He goes down and he tells them of Jesus. 
and people believe. Lydia, a high-class woman, seller of, of purple, she believes her family is baptized, and now suddenly Paul has a church in little Rome, a church, probably the first church in the entire Greek world, the, the westernmost place of belief in Jesus. You, you think that would have been kind of a rush? I do. See what just happened? We're in Philippi, and we started a church. Yes, okay. People are hearing about Jesus and getting excited. Now, there's also a little bit of commotion, because as they're going and telling others in the market and things about Jesus, well, something unexpected happens. They get, they get publicity, but not all publicity is good publicity necessarily. They get this girl screaming uh, wherever they go, they're sinned by God, no die! Don't go to you know, like this thing. She's telling everybody that they're sinned from God. But it's not like a good thing. It's like get away from them and it's super creepy. <laughs> Paul puts up with it several days, but they inquire and they find out this girl is obviously demonized. She has people that she works for as a fortune teller. So people come to her, she reads their fortune. Sometimes it's incredibly accurate, and people pay her masters. But this is a very dangerous, controlling spirit here. Now, I don't know why he put up with it for several days, but apparently he did. He's just very patient. But finally, I love this. Paul, greatly annoyed, turns to her and casts the demon out, <laughs> which I love. I'm like, why'd you wait so long, Paul? I don't know. I'm sure there was something else going on there. But he turns, just, oh, would you stop it? Just get out, right? The demon leaves. Suddenly, she's in her right mind, probably very relieved and excited, and her masters are not because their meal ticket is now gone. So they raise up an angry mob, and they have Paul and Silas arrested and brought before the magistrate. They get accused of all kinds of things, and, and Paul and Silas are sitting here handcuffed going, you told us to come here. You told us. How do you feel if you're Paul? You told us to come here, Lord. You, you were very, actually very specific. Well, they're taken to the jail. Now, I know I say this all the time in jest, but this actually is a picture of the archaeology site in Philippi. There actually was a jail there. And uh, many of these places, anybody been on a tour like this through either through the Holy Land or through Turkey? I really want to go on one of these kind of tours. Daniel has? Yeah. I really want to do this sometime because a lot of these sites... Are, are still well marked to this day. So he goes, uh, they take him to, uh, to this jail and they strip the prisoners naked before everybody and they beat them with rods. And after they're striped and ble bleeding profusely, they chain Paul and Silas up, they throw them into the inner prison, basically a dungeon. They throw them into the inner prison and lock their legs in stocks. Um, this is a, another picture here. This tradition says this might have been the actual place where the stocks were locked and where they were bleeding out, you know, in the middle of the night. Again, I have to ask, how would you have felt? Because I kind of know how I think I might have felt based on my own history. You see, I've read the book of Jeremiah, and I know Jeremiah's response, like, Lord, you called me to this thing and you tricked me. 
That's how Jeremiah responded. And I think I, could have, I would have probably related to that. Like, you know, Jeremiah has this amazing prophetic calling on his life, and it's going to be great, and everyone's going to listen. Well, he goes for decades, preaches the word of God with zero converts and, like, basically zero success. He says, Lord, now I'm a laughingstock. You tricked me. I think that's the way I would have felt if I was Paul. But, Lord, you called me to this place. What is happening right now? Lord, I, I thought I could trust you. I don't even know anymore. Except that's not what he does. That's not what Paul does in this situation. Uh, in fact, it's kind of the opposite. Here's what we find. We find that night in prison, we hear a sound coming from the dungeon. Voices, not pouting, but lifting up songs of joy. Broken melodies to Jesus Songs of the goodness of God. Songs without fear and without bitterness. They were singing hymns in the dungeon. Uh, do you, are you getting this? They were singing hymns in the dungeon. So an earthquake hits, the chains fall off, of course. <laughs> Old jailer is about to kill himself in the process because he thinks they've run away. And they say, don't kill yourself. And he looks at them. You're the guys who were singing. <laughs> What's wrong with you people? He ends up getting baptized. His whole family gets baptized that night. And it turns into this amazing story. Years later, Paul would find himself in jail again. And he would write a letter to this church in Philippi, these people he knew and loved these people who loved him dearly, these people who he had set this example for, here's what he tells them. Are you ready for this? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. When? Always. Always. Do you think he'd earned authority to say that in their lives? You know, it's easy to go, well, yeah, but he doesn't do that. But you're seeing Paul go, oh, well, he actually, yeah. I mean, he was, he had like almost no blood left. And he was thinking, <laughs> that's, that's Paul. He rejoiced all the time. He sang songs in the dungeon all the time. And, and this actually is just the way, the, the way that Paul rolls. It wasn't a one-time thing. You see, he'd, he'd earned Authority to do this. He lost his reputation, his entire reputation for Christ. And what does he say? It's a good trade. I win. I count it all as loss. Jesus is better. Rejoice in the Lord. He knows how to live rich. He knows how to live poor. He shrugs and says, either way, I'll be fine. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm not going to get down when I don't have a lot. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. He's beaten to a pulp and he says, Silas, buddy, let's sing a hymn. He's stoned, he's lashed, he's left for dead, he's shipwrecked, he's bitten by snakes, he's continually assaulted and probably dropped out of an airplane. He's threatened with execution. And what does he do in these situations? He shrugs his shoulders and says, either way, I win. I rejoice in the Lord no matter what happens. And again, I say rejoice. You see, he knew, friends, of the treasures in the dark, and he reveled in them. Now the inevitable question, what do you do when the chips are down? I'm not asking for the right answer. I'm asking you for the, to ask yourself, what do you do 
when the chips are down? What do you do when you feel like God's forsaken you, or worse yet, when you feel like he's tricked you? What do you do when the secular culture offends you? What do you do when you're faced with loss, with sickness, with uncertainty? Do you rejoice? He goes on to say this. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. Just looking at that word, it's a word we don't, ha we don't have a single English word to sum that up. But it's a forbearing spirit. It's a spirit that isn't in denial. In fact, it's, it's reasonable. It sees the good and the bad in the situation, but it refuses to lash out. It stays gentle and reasonable in the midst of all those things. A forbearing spirit. Have this spirit, says Paul. The Lord is at hand. He's near. He isn't far away, you see. He never was far away. He's going through these things right with you, right alongside you in that moment. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Tell him. Because he sees where you're at. So tell him. Tell him anyway. Tell him what's going on on the outside and on the inside. But while you're doing it, thank him for the things he's already completed. Thank, you for the things he's all, thank him for the things he's already doing in you. Thank, you. thank him for the things he will do. He will complete Remind him not only of your current situation, but remind him of the victories he's already scored. With thanksgiving and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, will guard your hearts and your minds from what? From things like fear? from things like cynicism, from complaining, from despair. You see, I used to think that it was more intellectually honest to just embrace those things because the only alternative was denial. I thought if something bad's going on, then I gotta just admit it and I gotta just go ahead and dive into those things, dive in to those dark places inside, because otherwise I'm just being fake. That's a, it's a, it's a false dichotomy, I think, guys. It's not like we have to do one or the other. It's a false choice. Submit your requests, Paul says. Go to prayer, go to Jesus. We tell him, but we tell him in the midst of thanksgiving. We recall those things. In fact, we can even speak those things out. Write those things down. You see, we're not giving in to fear. We're not giving in to cynicism. We're not giving in to complaining. We're not giving in to despair. Neither are we giving in to denial. Lord, this is real. This thing I'm going through, this is real and I don't like it. This is real and this hurts. Do you know that I'm hurting now, Lord? Do you see that I'm hurting? Do you see that I'm a bit afraid. Do you see that these things are happening? I don't know how to deal with it. So I need to tell you that, Lord. 
But Lord, I also need to thank you because you've never left me. You've never left me. In fact, you've done good things. <laughs> there was that one time when I was really scared and I didn't know how, was, how you were gonna come through and then you came through. Precisely, you came through. You spoke that word to me through my friends and he came and he spoke exactly what it needed to be and you came through. There was a time I didn't know how I was gonna pay my bills and suddenly, Lord, suddenly there was, you just showed up and it was taken care of. You remember that, Lord? I remember that too. Lord, you haven't left me alone. I feel alone, but you haven't left me there. You see how this works? You're not giving in to denial, but neither are you giving in to those things that society calls authenticity. There's something better for us, guys. There's something better. Worship team, can you come? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's any, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, let this be your meditation. Let these things be your meditation, not your problems, not the current situation. Let these be your meditations. We don't ignore the problem, that'll only make it worse. We acknowledge it, and then we meditate on his faithfulness in the process. That's Paul's prescription. Do you see this? That's his prescription. We see it, and we, we, the thing we, we look at, though, the thing we meditate on is his faithfulness. It is not the circumstance. Now, again, if you know me well, you know this is difficult for me. This thing that I'm preaching to you is difficult for me because I find myself in places, and when I get down, I end up, it, it, it kind of tends to almost swallow me up sometimes. So I've had to preach this to myself this week. So this week, my wife and I took Jack to a neurosurgeon, or not a neurosurgeon, excuse me, a neurologist because we're trying to figure out why he has, in his, he's severely autistic, for those who don't know us. Um, and we had great gains last year, but he has just, for some reason, really regressed the past couple of months. He's lost a whole bunch of vocabulary and all kinds of stuff, and it just gets, you start to sink in this thing of like, oh no. We're trying to figure out, is he having seizures that are setting him back? Is epilepsy mixed in uh, this whole autism concoction? We don't know what it is exactly. And I'll tell you guys, I've had to fight it. I've had to fight it. To, to go, uh, uh, this, is, this is just a, am I going to sink back down in this thing because I'm suddenly confronted with news that's not awesome? In my place, well, I can go to all those places. I can go to cynicism. I can go to despair. I can go to complaining. I can go to all those places. And this is why I find myself so confronted with the word I'm speaking to you now because the Lord calls me to rejoice. So how do I do that in my current situation? I can't say, Lord, everything's great. This is so perfect. Everything's so wonderful because it's not. So here's what I do. Here's what he's calling me to do that needs to become a discipline in my life is to say this, Lord, I don't know what's going on here with my son. He's gone backwards and I don't like this. And it raises all kinds of anxiety within me about his future that I don't even like to think about. So Lord, I'm coming to you here saying, I have a need in my son, and I have a need in me. Can you see it, Lord? 
Can you see that he's not doing well? But Lord, in the midst of this, I thank you that my son is more joyful than almost any kid that I know. I want to thank you that this kid always tries to get on stage whenever he possibly can and jump up and down and laugh and laugh like crazy because he loves the lights and he loves being in here and he loves this family. Lord, I thank you that because of my son and because of, of, of autism spectrum disorder, my family is knit together in a, in a really special kind of love and my kids have this special kind of love that they wouldn't have if not for this situation. Lord, I thank you that you've taken us from a place of despair and you've surrounded us with people who have strengths and understanding in this very area that I had never known. And I thank you that you put us in a church family that doesn't freak out when he runs through the building, in fact, celebrates him and really loves him. So Lord, I see the difficulties, but nevertheless, I will rejoice in you. Do you see how this works? Now I wanna ask you, I want to ask you this. Where do you go when you hit these times? And I want to ask you to be vulnerable this morning. I've been vulnerable with you guys. I want to ask you to be vulnerable. Where do you go when you hit these places? Do you go into cynicism? If you struggle with cynicism, you don't have to do this, but if you struggle with cynicism, I'm going to ask you, can you stand up? You want to make an exchange today from cynicism to joy? I want to ask you, do you struggle, do you go to that place of complaining? If you struggle with complaining, and it stay, keeps, everyone stay standing up. If you struggle in the place of complaining, stand up and let's, let's join these others. Okay? Fear. Do you go to the place of fear? Yeah? A lot of fear, huh? Despair. That's my big one. Do you go into the place of despair? Okay, so here we are. The gospel is confronting us in a way, saying these things, these ways, these places we go to, they're not what God intended. He's calling us to something else. He's talking us, telling us to drop these areas because they are sin and to embrace rejoicing and a new level of faith in his sufficiency to meet us where we're at. Here's what I want you to do. Let's, let's, take, let's take a moment. Close your eyes. All you who are standing, stay standing. And I want you to ask the Lord right now, Lord, show me your goodness in my life. Remind me what you've done. Remind me where you've met me. Let's do that right now. Even if it's just one thing, grab onto that memory. And now, hold on to that memory as we sing this song together. We're going to make an exchange. We're going to give him this thing that we struggle with. And in the midst of it, we are going to sing, Great is thy faithfulness. We're going to make an exchange. Wendy?
Father, and there is no shadow of turning with thee, and thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not, as thou hast been, thou Great is thy faithfulness Morning by morning New mercies I see All I have needed Thy hand hath provided Jesus, for your goodness, your incredible goodness, Lord. Thank you that you take us, even in those places that we go to, and offer us a, a, a hand out. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 prayer servant team is going to be up here. If the Lord's been really dealing with you this morning, I invite you to come and, 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 and get some more input, prayer, and ministry, or for any other thing that you're going through whatsoever. Thank you for being with us this morning. We'll see you next week.